Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Jada Emil, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Cynthia Clark, founder of Civility Matters. Dr. Clark serves as a fellow in the American Academy of Nursing, the National League for Nursing Academy of Nursing Education, and co-chaired the American Nurses Association panel on incivility, bullying, and workplace violence. Her groundbreaking work on fostering civility has brought national and international attention to the controversial issues of incivility in academic and practice environments. Thank you so much, Dr. Clark, for being with us today. I first just want to say hello to you, Jenna. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be part of Raise the Line. I'm just so delighted to be with you and our listeners today. Thank you for that. I'm really, really excited. You know, honestly, anytime I can speak to another nurse, I'm just excited in general about that. But I'm super curious to hear, you know, about yourself and your background and really what led to your interest in nursing education. Oh, wow. So first of all, my nursing career began more than three decades ago. So I've been a nurse a fair amount of time. And before I started teaching at the university, I worked as a behavioral health nurse, and my specialty was in adolescent mental health and substance abuse disorders. Many of our clients had a long history of violence and substance abuse. A lot of them had been neglected, abused, abandoned. Some had committed offenses so severe that they were facing lengthy detention or incarceration. So our mental health team utilized a strength-based approach to treatment planning for our clients to help support them toward a positive and productive future. Because honestly, and maybe you have some familiarity with this, often our clients were told things like this, you're a waste of space, I wish you had never been born, what's one more dead gangster? These are powerful, penetrating, and damaging messages. So it was our job to help the kids identify their strengths, what was right about them, what was good about them. And so being a member of that high-performing team and working with youth who were facing a lot of difficult challenges, that really significantly informed my clinical path my program of research, and I became really dedicated to preventing and addressing incivility and other forms of aggression and really fueled my passion for this topic. So I did that for more than a dozen years working with teenagers, and I was having a great time being a nurse manager in behavioral health. But then I was approached by a nursing professor from the university, and she said, hey, I think you ought to apply for this faculty position in the nursing program. I'm like, what? (laughs) So at first I thought, oh, you got to be joking, right? But over time, she convinced me to apply for the position. So after a series of interviews and (laughs) much to my surprise and really delight, I was hired for a faculty position and I thrived in that role for about 20 years. So it was really awesome and extremely fulfilling. So that's how I ended up in nursing education. That's fantastic. Now, you said something that resonates with me. You talked about 
the negative language, you know, in your experience with working with the youth and the adolescents. And the one thing that I think about that comes to my mind immediately as a registered nurse and as a nurse educator is that same type of negative language that unfortunately has been said too many times throughout nursing. I think about nurses eat their young. I think about the students who are enrolling into a nursing program today and have an orientation and hear comments like, you know, look around, these people aren't going to be with you to the end. And I'm curious, how does civility matters and your passion really around this and your, your posture around this, how does this translate into nursing education? Yeah, well, what a great question. So as a behavioral health nurse, I have really long been intrigued by human behavior and asking questions about why do people do the things they do and maybe including and perhaps even more importantly what are the ways that we can prevent and address these problem behaviors and instead of separating us creating a sense of unity and inclusion and high performance so i mentioned my work with the teenagers that really fully informed my research agenda. So during the early 2000s, I really started to study this in earnest, you know, incivility, bullying, workplace aggressions, and investigated ways that are evidence-based that we can prevent and address the problem. So I started Civility Matters shortly after that and have continued to really pursue this with a deep, (laughs) really compassion and passion that has extended well beyond the academic setting into the practice setting, especially when we're talking about patient safety issues being at stake because we are, you know, maybe demeaning or demoralizing one another. And so what began as just a simple question, really, but an important question about what motivates human behavior turned into this lifetime commitment to my mission which is to lead the Coalition for Change to build communities of civility and inclusion so that every one of us, all of our lives can be improved and ultimately to make the world a better place. may sound grandiose, but I firmly, firmly believe that. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that civility matters. How do you explain that? You know, what is civility matters? And How can Civility Matters help us in the workplace and help us in these academic settings? Well, when I think about civility and what we need to be doing in our academic environments, this is a concept that needs to not just be done at the beginning or the end of a nursing program or nursing curricula, but ultimately being threaded throughout you know, the concepts of how we treat one another. And for me, civility is a choice. It's a decision we make every single day, even when the stuff is hitting the fan and things are challenging and stress is heightened. We have a decision with every single encounter of how we wish to interact and treat one another. So I think that that's done a lot through role modeling, I think it's done through reinforcing the kind of desired behaviors we wish to see and by making it part of our nursing DNA. I love that you mentioned 
from like the beginning, from the moment, you know, you enter nursing education as a student, even who's enrolled to the other side of it, practicing. I think that's a really important piece. I'm curious, in your opinion, what are some of the ways that you feel like in nursing and practice and or education when we're not practicing and being mindful about civility and really what that means and how to, to do that in the wild? What are the things that we're missing as far as by not doing this? This is the poor outcome that we get as a result. And this is why it's important that we should engage in this type of best practice around civility. Well, to me, the absolute most important reason that nurses need to be skilled and schooled and honed and mastering some of these concepts ultimately is patient safety. So that is number one. But when it comes to what we can do, you know, in actual strategy is one of the techniques that I have been using for more than a decade, actually probably close to two decades now, is using a technique called cognitive rehearsal. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, Jana, but it's a behavioral strategy that's designed to prepare an individual to effectively deal with an anticipated or what could be identified as a stressful event. So it's a technique where we work with people, nurses, nurses, students. I've done it a lot with nurses in practice, with nursing students, where they work with a skilled facilitator to rehearse. That's where the rehearsal comes in. Effective ways to address a particular problem, including uncivil acts or bullying encounters. So essentially what we do is we prepare them for this potential situation using role play, simulation, and repeatedly rehearsing it ahead of time while simultaneously being coached by someone very skilled at effective communication and conflict negotiation and then debriefing it. And when we put this powerful combination of skill sets together, it can really lead to a much more successful encounter, respectful interaction. It heightens interprofessional collaboration. And ultimately, as I said, the end game really is to protect patient safety as well as worker, healthcare worker safety. So That is one very strong, powerful, evidence-based way that educators can really use to make a difference. Yeah, that actually sounds quite powerful. I've not heard about that before. Thank you for sharing that. Now I'm really interested in looking more into that. Thinking about, you know, bridging the gap, right? I'm thinking about that education practice gap between students who are in academia, getting ready to graduate and enter the field. In your opinion, what's the best way to, to bridge that so that, you know, we are constantly creating a positive work culture for these students that are now, you know, stepping into new shoes, into this environment? Yeah, I, I love this question. It is so extraordinarily important. Yeah. So important to me, at least, and it sounds like to you and probably our listeners, that a few years ago, I actually conducted a research study on this exact topic where I asked 
hundreds of academic and practice-based nurse leaders and managers to answer several questions. But the overarching question is the one you pretty much just posed. How can members of nursing education and practice work together to create positive, productive work environments? And here's what they had to say. So some of the specific things that they said and way at the top of the hit parade were a couple of things. One was leaders from both areas, practice and academe, need to come together and co-create a shared vision of what we mean by civility and healthy work environments. Simultaneous to that, they said, we need to work together to co-create nursing curricula that emphasizes the importance of healthy work environment, that we need to adopt and implement codes of conduct, team charters, implement policies and procedures that promote a healthy work environment, provide civility education and practicing and reinforcing, I can tell you from my work, two extremely important areas that I spend a good deal of time, and that is how we're going to improve our communication skills and our conflict negotiation skills, and that we need to be very intentional about our hiring practices, who we're bringing in, and thinking about bringing folks in with civility and character and teamwork in mind. Other things that I learned from this research and through my own practice is that other strategies included that we need to be holding ourselves and other, others accountable yeah. for displaying the kinds of behaviors we want to see. We need to step up and advocate and be allies and upstanders for those who are targeted by incivility and other acts of aggression. And I think we'll probably get into this a little later, but the absolute importance of implementing stress reduction strategies and building resilience capacity. And a couple other things to think about. I also ask them, what are some of the essential skills that our learners need to be learning in nursing education? And they emphasized a lot of those things that I just mentioned. But one of the things they said is that they need to learn to negotiate conflict and to use effective communication in real time, yeah. in real time, so that when we see these conflicts occur, maybe one member of the healthcare team diminishing another, say at the nurse's station and berating or bullying, let's deal with that in real time and including our nursing students. And that means faculty and nurse managers working together to help educate staff and nursing students on these very important real-time issues. The listeners can't see me, but <laughs> you can see me, Dr. Clark. And I'm like slow nodding yes to all of this and, and like the, the most powerful way, because this is powerful stuff. And what you just shared with us is some big, big gems. And I think about why does it take so long? I'm curious, like in your expert opinion, why did it take so long to get to this point? And I'll just use nursing, you know, just as an example, to really have these conversations in a transparent, 
real speak, let's call this out and address it type of way. What do you think about that? You know, I think it has taken some time. My perspective on it, since I've been literally really saturated in this topic for more than two decades, yeah, or about two decades, I guess. And if we go back, as I said, into my work with teenagers, this has really been the pathway of my life yeah. for even longer. And I think for a long time, especially when I first started, people didn't want to talk about it. They wanted to bury their heads in the sand. They would want me to come, you know, have conversations with, say, their faculty team or whatever. But they would say, don't tell anybody you're coming, you know, (laughs) as though my presence would insinuate that there's a problem. And I think that we have begun to say, no, there may be some warts and wrinkles, but it's going to take all of us individually and collectively to change the tide and to turn the ship around in the harbor. And I see that happening. I am extremely optimistic. The body of research on this topic is growing. Our intervention studies are becoming more plentiful. We know what some of the best evidence tells us. And I am thrilled to be part of this coalition that is leading this change. It's a humbling position, but it's also a great honor. Yeah. I can't tell you enough just really how exciting it is to hear about these efforts that your coalition is is really taking on. It's so necessary. You know, late or not, it's so, so, so necessary. And something that you alluded to before, when I think about where we are now, right, the COVID crisis, and it's revealed a lot of things about our healthcare system. But one of the topics that seems to float to the top most often in our field is just our mental health, right? Our own mental health and dealing with this as these frontline professionals. And so I'm curious about what has this particular, you know, crisis of COVID revealed, not just about where our breakdowns are in the healthcare system, because we know that exists, but with civility, like how has that put civility at the top of this is an important thing we should be addressing right now? Oh, I I couldn't agree more. And so, oh my gosh, so you're absolutely right. If we were to list all of the ways that the pandemic has revealed itself, we would be here for countless hours. (laughs) Yeah. Because there are some real areas for concern and nurses and other healthcare professionals continue to face some real significant challenges, both in the clinical and the academic settings. I tend to look through a couple of lenses, and one is through the lens of leadership, and one is through the lens of behavioral health or mental health. And it's interesting that you pointed that out a little bit is because I'm really deeply concerned about the level of stress, anxiety, burnout. We're seeing a heightened level of onset or exacerbation around mental health and substance abuse issues regarding nurses and other members of our team. And as one example, you're probably aware, Jonna, of the American Association of Colleges of Nursing recently released a call to action for all academic nurse leaders to enhance optimal well-being, resilience, and suicide prevention. We know the American Nurses Association has reported that nurses are nearly three times more stressed than the American public. Our suicide rates 
are higher among nurses than the general population. Stress and burnout and moral distress are posing significant health concerns. So I believe the need to foster civility in healthy work environments has never been greater. I agree. When we add to the stress of the pandemic by having workplace incivility, we're really ratcheting things up because no matter how we measure it, and I'm talking incivility, no matter how we measure incivility and its linkage to stress, whether we measure it qualitatively, quantitatively, mixed methods, biomarker studies, there is an undeniable link between stress and incivility. So in other words, when stress levels are high, the potential for incivility also rises. And we know what the detrimental impacts are. We've studied it enough. It lowers our morale. We're less productive. We have higher turnover rates. It diminishes our quality of work. It increases our isolation, jeopardizes patient safety, and the list goes on and on. Yeah. And so I would say this, I get posed this particular question a lot. And people will say to me, hey, Dr. Clark, what's the magic potion? What's the secret sauce (laughs) to creating and sustaining a healthy work environment and a healthy learning environment for faculty and students? And the answer obviously isn't simple because it's messy and it's complex and it's complicated. But if I were to mention one or two must-do interventions, regardless of where we work, I would say that we need to work together to co-create and implement a civility charter that includes norms for our teams, how we're going to engage that are utilized on a day-to-day basis of how we're going to interact with one another and then build in accountability measures for those. Now, those are not simple things to do, Mm -mm. but I think they are some of our best evidence of what each team ought to be doing. I think it's brilliant. I think that's brilliant and very important. I like that you frame that up in that way because the important things aren't always easy to do but they're important, right? They must be done. So it's, I think it's helpful to recognize that things aren't always going to be easy, but they're necessary. And, you know, that it's going to be a temporary inconvenience for a permanent payout for something that is as impactful as what you're talking about. We have, you know, in our audience, I think about our early healthcare professionals or students, you know, who are listening in right now, I'm wondering what would be your advice to them, you know, as they approach their career in healthcare right now and you know, how to best meet the different challenges of this moment that we're all in. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, let me first say this. Any stress or anxiety that any of us are experiencing during this unpredictable time is a normal response to an abnormal situation. So I think that when we have times of uncertainty that test our patience and our grit, and these can certainly contribute to heightened levels of stress. So we need to give ourselves and each other the gift of grace as we try to navigate these uncertainties together and to seek calm through mindfulness and building our resilience capacity. 
because the emotional impact of COVID-19 is undeniable and we're still in the throes of it. Today, I just noticed that our one day count of COVID positive cases is unbelievable. And so here we are still in the thick of it. And so we need to be integrating self-care and wellness activities into our daily lives because we need to be healthy and we need to take care of ourselves. You know, John, here's the other thing. I also believe in the power of sharing our stories to reach out to others for support because none of us needs to do this alone. It's important for us to take time to let others know, hey, I might need to take a break or I might need to reach out to you, John, and my colleague for support. This is not a sign of weakness. This is asking our colleagues or our classmates to help us fulfill basic human needs. And let's remember this, that the collective voices of nurses, we are strong. We are powerful. That's right. We are well-respected. I mean, witness the most recent Gallup poll, 19 years in a row, the most respected, and only because 2001 saw 9-11, our first responders. So nurses are amazing. So we need to work together and use this strong, powerful, well-respected voice to look to the future and create a positive, compelling vision, not only for our profession, but society, and I believe the world, that nurses carry a strong leadership capacity in making a difference during this pandemic and beyond. I could not agree more. Dr. Clark, this was powerful. It was insightful informative, motivating, and really reassuring. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for imparting all of this knowledge on us. Well, you know what? I want to thank you. I want to thank you and all the folks within your company, Raise the Line listeners, everybody, for this golden opportunity to speak with you and your listeners. It has been a privilege and an honor. So I want to thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Clark. I'm Jonna Emil. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.